You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming at you from the clubhouse tonight. We have a very special guest with us this evening, someone who is a non-pedal steel guitar and dobro player. I'm talking about Cindy Cash Dollar. Cindy, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we were finally able to do this. Oh, my gosh. A scheduling issues, but well, we you finally were, got it. You were one busy woman between your schedule and mine and the clubhouse schedule. I can't believe we, we finally pulled this together, but here we are. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> Very happy to have you here. we got so much to talk about, so let's just jump in with a little talk about your instrument. There are people that may not know the dobro as well as, as certainly as you. you know, what, what is the difference between a non-pedal steel instrument and a dobro exactly? How would you describe non-pedal steel guitar to the layman? Wow, that's, that's about six podcasts right here. <laughs> But I will start with, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the evolution of man poster. If you think about the evolution of the guitar to the dobro, which is a patent name, to the lap steel, which is, you know, when they first started using pick elect- pickups with amplifiers. Yeah. And finally, the non-pedal steel to the pedal steel is all a journey. In, in design. But I will say that starting out with the Dobro, a lot of people have seen it, but they may not connect that they've seen it with the name. Dobro is a patent name. It's Dobro is basically a guitar with a large decorative plate, like a cover plate. And underneath that pretty silver disc on the front of the guitar is a, uh, a cone that is spun of aluminum and other alloys. And uh, it looks like an upside-down stereo speaker. Hmm. And that's exactly what it does. It projects the sound. And it's that's, a resonator. Yes, a resonator. That is the actual name. Dobro is Kleenex resonator's tissue. Ah, you know? good analogy. Dobro was uh, invented by the Dopera brothers who came from Czechoslovakia. I didn't know that. And patented a way to make the guitar louder. And it was made in round necks, square necks. Uh, a square neck, which is what I play, is usually played on a lap, although now you can stand with it. Uh, because of the square neck size, you can't press the strings down onto the fretboard with your left hand like you can on a regular guitar hmm. because it has a nut that is ra- it raises the strings up and you play it with a slide bar. And so that's the difference. So what was Dobro is now kind of referred to as a resonator guitar. Did a resonator originate in the Appalachian Mountains? I mean, where did it come from originally for the people who invented it? Well, I mean, the, you said Czechoslovakia it came well, from, they, it, was, it was in the Dopera brothers' mind um, just to amplify the instrument acoustically. But slide guitar in itself had come along long before it was applied to a resonator. The uh, slide guitar was made very I mean, it's in all different countries. It's in Africa. It's in India. All the instruments look different. But basically, you're, you're sliding along the fretboard with a slide bar, picking with your right hand. Long before the, the patent name of Doro, people were playing slide. Um, the Portuguese sailors in, influenced the Hawaiian people. The Hawaiian people made the sound popular. And then when the Dopera brothers came along with their invention of the Doro, and then Hawaiian music came to the United States via the World's Fair, via a lot of different circumstances. It caught on with a lot of different people and also with country and bluegrass players. So when you say Appalachian, I think that there was also the influence there with the dulcimer, mm. which is played with the fingers but still on the lap. And so it's, it's a sound. It's really an inherent sound. 
that you connect to a lot of different things. It's really amazing. Well, it's a beautiful sound. I mean, it's one of my favorite instruments, actually. I mean, it, it's got this high, uh, well, the high lonesome sound, I guess, is, yes. is how they refer it to can, it. Yes. It's got such a mournful uh, twang to it, but in, in a beautiful way. It's always, well, I was going to say it always resonated with me, but I, I'm not even going to not even going to go That's there. That's good. <laughs> we can go that was, with that. That wasn't even on purpose. <laughs> we can go with that. I mean, because you're because the left hand is doing the work instead of fretting chords or single notes like you would on a regular guitar, where you're pressing the strings down on the fretboard. The slide bar that you hold in your left hand is doing that work for you, and you can do chords or you can do singular notes, and you can also do different tunings to get to different sounds. It's a little bit like playing slide guitar, I imagine. Yeah, because slide guitar is either that, the the form of slide that I'm speaking of right now, or there's bottleneck style, which is applied to a regular guitar with a round neck. The strings are close to the fret, uh, to the fretboard, and people usually play with a glass slide bar or a number of different different materials that they use on their ring finger, their left hand, or their middle finger, or whatever suits them. Yeah. So that's what, you know, when people see a lot of slide guitar players, that's what they're seeing is somebody sliding up and down the fretboard on a regular guitar. Bonnie Raitt, Lowell George, Dwayne Allman, all these people. All the greats. Slides. Sonny Landreth, Rory Block, a lot of people, Arlen Roth. A lot of people you've played with, Mm -hmm. in fact. Do you Mm -hmm. think you might play a little piece just to demonstrate the sound for our listeners? Sure. That would be great. I'll do that right now. Um, Play a little something for us. All right, here we go. Uh, I'll just do a little bit so people can hear the sound of it. The dobro was, as I said, used in Hawaiian music, and then it got popular in country music and bluegrass, and now it's used for so many different things. But I'll just do a little bit here. So the dobro is tuned. Uh, There's different tunings you can use, but this is open G tuning. And I usually start with the top string, the string furthest away from me, the thinnest string, which is a D note, D dog, B boy, G. Then that repeats D, B, G. And so so this is on my lap. So this is probably the sound that most people will have heard on this instrument. A lot of people um, kind of think this is a country bluegrass sound. Incredible. I mean, just sitting next to this instrument and listening to it in this room is just unbelievable. What a sound and what a player. Very nice. How many how many dobros do you have? Do you know? I only have two. I have the first one that my dad bought for me long ago when I started learning. Uh, that was built. Uh, I think it's a oh, it might be a 1937 model somewhere mm-hmm. around there. And then this is a. A newer one made by Beard Guitars uh, out of Maryland. And uh, this actually has two resonators in it. It's got two cones, aluminum uh, cones in it. 
that give it the that give it the sound. Fat sound, really nice. Now your husband. Harvey Citron, very good reputation as a musician, but probably even better known as a luthier, master luthier around here. I hear his name come up all the time in relation to quality stuff. I mean, has he built you anything? He must have. Yes, he, he did. <laughs> he, he built me a beautiful lap steel. Oh. The lap steel came along sometime after the Dobro. It's, uh, I mean, people were, were experimenting with electronics. You know, as the bands got bigger, even with the Hawaiian music, with country music, country music turned into Western swing with groups like Milton Brown and his musical Brownies and Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. As swing music became popular, a lot of the country players would adapt to that big band sound. So the groups got louder and you needed a louder instrument. So they came up with electronics and an amplifier so you could hear the instrument. So, uh, yes, yeah, so Harvey built me a beautiful lap steel out of three different woods, so it's got a really beautiful sustain. And I used that particular lap steel in uh, the same tuning, open G tuning, but um, it's, it's really something. It's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous sounding instrument. It sure is. And, and you've got a lot of non-pedal steel guitars, uh, I imagine. I mean, I, I've seen some on YouTube that you play. There was one in particular that caught my attention. There were there were a few, actually. One was a 1927. Oh, you know the yeah. one I'm talking about? Yes. It, uh, it was an instrument called a Weisenborn. It was invented by Henry Weisenborn. They were made in the 20s, and they were made of cobble wood, they also had square necks, but the square necks were hollow and a little larger than the instrument I'm playing now. There's a lot of different luthiers now that are making the same type of Weisenborn model guitar, but I have a, a Pogriba Weisenborn made by Larry Pogriba, who makes a lot of David Lindley's guitars, and Bonnie Raitt plays one of his, and Sonny Landreth, but... It's just a big baritone Weisenborn, and it's made of a lot of different woods, and um, it's got antique uh, coins going up the neck from the 1800s. Wow. So um, I don't have it here with me, but it's, it's got a very different sound. It's, it's in a different tuning. It's a very big, open D tuning, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of sound, it just sounds like this beautiful, huge piano is what it sounds like Wow. And you have a Remington as well. I have a, a steel guitar. Actually, it's a double-neck, eight-string steel guitar. Each neck has eight strings. Each neck's in a different tuning. And that was built by Herb Remington, who was the steel guitar player for Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys for some time. And he made this uh, especially for you, right? Yes. And you've worked together with him as well. He's on some recordings of yours. I yes. Believe. When I was with the Western Swing, the Texas Swing Group Asleep at the Wheel, we did a a couple of CDs that were a tribute to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Bob Wills being one of the, as I mentioned earlier, one of the forerunners of Western swing music. Huge influence on uh, Oh, on he had music. amazing bands. Yeah, M- much bigger than people realize, all the people that he influenced. The swing music that was played by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys was really this melting pot of jazz and blues and big band and all these different things. And Herb Remington was one of the uh, famous steel guitar players that, that Bob had hired. The other one was Leon McAuliffe. There was, there was a few different steel players. Bob Wilson, his band went on for a, quite a, a long time. But when I was with The Sleep of the Wheel, we did a couple of tribute CDs to uh, Bob Wills. And uh, the first one, a lot of the original members of 
that group was still alive. So we had Johnny Gimmel on fiddle, the great Eldon Shamlin on guitar, wow. Leon Rausch on vocals. It was really amazing, amazing to work with all those people. I'd love to hear a little something that you recorded with Herb. Is that possible to listen to? Yeah. Uh, actually, my first CD slideshow, which has a lot of different guests, uh, Herb Remington is, is playing on, on two tracks. And we had such a great time. He really was a, a, a huge influence on my steel guitar playing and, and a teacher and a mentor and a dear friend. So um, one of the tracks we did was, was a, a track that Bob Wills and the Playboys had cut, Twin Guitar Special. Twin Guitar Special, Cindy Cash Dollar, Herb Remington. Listen to this. <laughs>
Cindy, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your name. I know everybody who's ever interviewed you or ever spoken to you probably has brought this up, but I'm not going to ask if it's your real name because I know that it everybody is. Everybody does. You can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, su- I'm sure you're used to it, but I, I, I know it is your real name. What interests me is the lineage behind it. I, I, I was thinking about it last night. I was like, what could that be? I mean, for one thing, it's such a cool name. It's got cash and dollar in it. I mean, did that put any pressure <laughs> on you growing up? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. But No, um, I was relentlessly teased in high school, both both my brother, Russ Cash Dollar, and myself. My brother's a drummer. I mean, and is that so, Scottish? I mean, what is that name? Where's it come re- from? We're not really sure. It's a, it's a name that goes very far back in Woodstock um, and also... Uh, you know, there, there was cash dollars throughout Ulster County, but they're also very prevalent in Tennessee, hmm. Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. I've met a cash dollar that grew up on the Mohawk Indian Reservation, Robert Cash Dollar. I've met many over the years that all claim a different lineage. So it's on my, my li- you know, things to do. You always have a list. Yeah, I'm going to do this someday. So someday, yeah, I'm going to try and figure out where it came from because I've met so many different cash dollars in, in, in those different parts. Of the I'm United surprised States. to hear that. I've never heard the name other than from you. Being on the road all these years before cell phones and computers, whenever I was on the road before that, I would just look through a phone book in the hotel room. You know, it's very interesting. I would look up cash dollars, find them once in a blue moon, call them, get invited over to someone's home for the afternoon if I had a day off. So, you know, if you have that weird name, it's nice. You have a camaraderie with I would imagine you have, do. Who have suffered their whole life with <laughs> saying, yes, it's real. Yes, it's one word. Here's how it's spelled. Yeah. It's a cool name. Love it. Love it. Now, you mentioned Woodstock a little while ago. You're from Woodstock, born and raised, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, let me ask you about Woodstock. Woodstock, obviously a very venerated spot for musicians, not just in New York State, but I have friends that come in from outside of New York State. They all want to go to Woodstock. They all, can we see Woodstock? It's a very fabled place filled with folklore, but is it still that same place? Does it still have some of that that old magic, or, or has that just kind of faded into legend at this point? Ah, that's a really good question. Of course, it's nothing like it was when I was growing up there which was before the Woodstock Festival, but close to. There's still the magic there. To me, it looks the same. The Mm -hmm. buildings haven't changed. You know, you can go into town of Woodstock. Most of the buildings look exactly like they did long ago when you see the old historic photos. But the content of Woodstock is very different. One, I mean, when I was growing up, before the festival, it really was a township of, you had the artists, whether they were painters, poets, sculptors, musicians. And then you had the local people that had always been there that were farmers, like my family. My grandparents had a dairy farm. My, you know, our dad delivered milk, worked on the farm. Um, woodworkers, mill workers, you know, it was a very hardworking kind of community on that end. And then the festival came, but it was always, I think, a place that drew, if you, if you weren't born and raised there, and you were an artist looking for a nice place to create and find peace, it was Woodstock. And I believe that element is still there, although it shows up in different ways. Hmm. Well, you know, when you were a young girl growing up in Woodstock, and it was still that that kind of fabled place, almost like talking about old Hollywood or something. (laughs) That's very true. You know? (laughs) 
there were there were a lot of uh, a lot of characters and a lot of great musicians, and mm-hmm. some of them championed your music. Uh, I'm talking about people like Rick Danko and and uh, Lee Von Helm and Paul Butterfield. It's funny. I mean, we're talking of a, a, a litany of people that could have been at the Woodstock Festival. In fact, mm-hmm. and in fact, Paul Butterfield he played. Uh, and the band did and too. And the band played as well. Were, they were allowed to be filmed. I guess. Yeah, they were all there. So you have this kind of history with Woodstock, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as it would appear, you leave, you move to Austin, Texas. You're there for, I don't know, 20-plus years. Yeah. Did you go there for work, or were you trying to steep yourself in in Texas blues? Why did you go there? Not at all. I did go there for work. You know, growing up in Woodstock, I was so influenced by so many different musicians that were there. There was a club there called Joyous Lake which had a lot of different touring acts. I saw so many different bands there. And even when I was 11, 12 years old, taking guitar lessons, my first concert was seeing in Woodstock, Van Morrison, John Hammond Jr., Odetta, all these artists. So I always had music in my life and played with a lot of different artists. I was very lucky at a young age to have met and worked with so many amazing artists in Woodstock. By the time I moved to Texas in 1992, um, there wasn't really that much work around Woodstock. You know, there was a time you could work all throughout the weekend or maybe during the week playing music. But, you know, as the club started disappearing, the live music scene, uh, I couldn't really make a living. So first I moved to Nashville and I was there for six months. And then I was hired by a group out of Austin, Texas to sleep at the wheel. So I had to move to Austin. That's why I moved there in 1992 and toured and recorded with the Sleep at the Wheel for nine years and then ended up staying in Austin. I thought it was kind of like somebody took Woodstock, picked it up and dropped it in the middle of a really cool city. Wow. (laughs) You know, the music scene is very vibrant in Austin. A lot of well-known musicians from that area of the country. Mm -hmm. Willie Nelson is one of them. Towns Mm -hmm. Van Zandt. Guy Ritchie. Stevie, uh, well, Stevie Ray Wallace was a little. Stevie Ray. Oh, the whole Antones Club blues people. and Oh, it's, it's just an amazing mecca of artists. Let me just back up for a second, um, talking about Woodstock again, mm-hmm. before we talk more about Austin. One guy that really sticks out in my mind that may have been instrumental in your career is John Harold. Yes. Now, John mm-hmm. Harold, he, he was essentially a bluegrass musician. Mm-hmm. He played bluegrass. So, I mean, you... I marvel at how many different styles that you can play, or at least how how you meld in with people that play a wide variety of styles, from country to blues to, to bluegrass. Is bluegrass where you got your start? Yes. Well, I guess so. I mean, I think it's where I, I eventually evolved because I played guitar for, I guess, from 11 years old to maybe 19, 20 years old. Then heard someone playing the dobro. Always loved bottleneck any style of slide guitar I always loved. Someone playing it at a club in Woodstock where I was waitressing. So that's when I kind of gave up guitar and went into Dobro and mm. Lapseal and all things slide. So that's how that started. And my teacher, wonderful man by the name of Charlie Ferrara, who's a multi-instrumentalist, he taught me how to play Dobro and he loved bluegrass. So that's where I went. And that's how I ended up playing with John Harold. Was John Harold a mentor of yours as well? I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but I I think I learned I mean, I still learn a lot from from every artist I work with. And Herb Remington said to me a long time ago, when you stop learning, 
you just kind of die. Mm. You have to keep learning. You have to always keep your ears open to stuff. And I do. And I'm very thankful to be able to work with so many different people. John Harold to me was a great musician. He was a really good guitar player. And his he but he was not I guess he was kind of like an Americana is such a broad-based overused term now. But his music was bluegrass, but it was also what I guess you would call Americana. It covered a wide variety of styles within the acoustic idiom. It was very interesting to me back then to be playing bluegrass, and you'd be playing straight bluegrass, and we'd be playing a lot of bluegrass festivals, but we were the, always the oddballs at the bluegrass festivals, you know? We weren't a straight bluegrass. John played folk music. He was in a very popular group called the Greenbrier Boys. You know, which was folk and bluegrass. So he kind of was a broad spectrum, I would say, of music styles. And so I would say yes, that I, it was an eye opener to, to play with him and just kind of see a person that kind of walked, walked the walk and all of these different little pockets of music and could still get booked at festivals. And you know, that's kind of a little before festivals started broadening out you know, bluegrass festival now, well, that could encompass a lot of different kinds of music, you know. Sure. So, so yeah, he, he was one of, of many influences, I would say, educators. So when you left this area and you went down to Austin, how did the music change for you? You started learning more about Texas blues. And, oh, and wow. <laughs> that was like, you know, when I got hired by Sleep at the Wheel, you know, it's a Texas swing band. They wanted a steel guitar player. Well, I had just started learning as a hobby. You know, I had been touring with Leon Redbone for five years and just playing Leon Redbone kind of, you know, real <laughs> steeped in like old blues kind of stuff. And and so the steel guitar was just kind of a hobby for me. And But I was a big Asleep at the Wheel fan and big Texas swing fan. I had never played it, but I had seen it, heard it. And so when they hired me, it really was sink or swim. And I'd given them a demo tape, and the band leader, leader Ray Benson, said to me, "Well, we're going to give you we're going to give you six months." He said, uh, "Heard your demo, hell of a Dover player. Can't say much about your steel guitar playing, but I hear promise." <laughs> Tell me what you really think. Yeah, he said, "You know, we tried a bunch of people out, and they can't get along with anybody, so." You work with Leon Redbone for five years. That tells me you can work with anybody. That's exactly <laughs> what he said. Wow. Exactly. So, yeah, it really was sink or swim. I was married at the time to someone else. Moved him to Austin, and, and uh, it really was it was a pressurized situation. You know, it was really a situation. I had so much on the line, I really couldn't just quit, even though there was a lot of times I wanted to in the beginning. It was way over my head. But luckily for me, the steel guitar player whose place I took, John Ely remained in Austin. I took lessons from him every chance I got. I would drive to Houston, take lessons from her Remington, drive to Dallas, take steel lessons from somebody else, and just lived, breathed, ate steel guitar. That's dedication. Until it was no longer a hobby. It was just I had to learn the instrument to keep up with this amazing band that had saxophone, piano, fiddle. It was a big band of swing music. I couldn't read music, didn't know music theory, but I had a good ear. So I, I, I made it, you know, and I stuck to it, but it was not easy. Well, also, a lot of that hard work and dedication uh, paid off because you certainly earned the respect of your peers down there. In 2011, 
you were inducted into the Steel Guitar, Texas Steel Guitar Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, that was a, that was a huge honor. I was a, the first woman woman to be inducted. Yes, that's amazing. Um, not a lot of female steel guitar players. There are, don't know why, but um, that was a really sweet honor. Um, so many people I admire uh, were, were in that Hall of Fame and a um, great bunch of people, and it was a very, really um, amazing place to be that day. And it's not the only honor you were bestowed with. You also were inducted into the Texas Musician Hall of Fame a year later, right? Yeah, that, that was great, too. I mean, there's, it's such a, an amazing um, place. M- much like Woodstock before, I've said, you know, Woodstock reminded me, also reminded me of somebody who just took Woodstock in the old days and dumped it into a big city in the middle of Texas. <laughs> but it's a, a very live music-oriented town. Nashville is more, I think, of a publishing, recording town, even though there's great live music there. Yeah. Texas, even though there is that, is just seven nights a week. It's just pumping out in so many clubs, great live music. I used to go down to Nashville and play, and it was great for the first few years, but toward the end, just maybe a few years ago, there was so many cover bands. Uh, it yeah. was very surprising. Everywhere I looked in Nashville, people doing cover, journey covers. You know? It's, I know, <laughs> because country music has become pop music, which has become, yeah. it's like, it's it's kind of hard pressed to find, you know, will the real Nashville please stand up? Yeah. Because there's so many different versions of it. But, Speaking uh, of accolades, by the way, uh, Cindy, that you have not one, not two, but five Grammys, uh, are these Grammys that you won with Asleep at the Wheel? Yes. What do they do when a group wins Grammys? Do they just issue a Grammy statue to everybody in the band? How does that yes. work? Yes, but it, it depends on, on who you're working with, too. I think Ray Benson, who is Asleep at the Wheel, been the band leader for so long, he made sure that each one of us was honored. That's great. Uh, not only as an individual, but collectively as the band. Those were... It's so the Grammys are really fun, and we would uh, play. We played quite, you know, some of the after parties for the Grammys. I mean, it's such an honor, but it's such a a fun thing to do, especially um, just watching people, people coming into the auditorium and hearing all the great live music, and it's it's a very fun time. Ah, it's got to be great. What do you do with the Grammys? Where are they? Do you put them on the mantle? Do you wrap them up in tissue paper and put them away in the <laughs> oh, closet? What do you do? People have different uses. <laughs> they might Holding up a shelf them. or something? Yeah, they have different ways. Uh, right now, mine are on a mantle. They they look nice there. It's like, hell, I've spent a lot of miles, a lot of mileage and years for these. So they're on the mantle in the living room, yes. Let's hear what, I mean, not these specific Grammys, but just Grammy. I have a feeling you're not done winning Grammys. Uh, I, I want to give our listeners another chance to hear why you win these Grammys and why you're bestowed with these awards and accolades. Let's hear a little something else. How about that? Well, I brought a couple of tracks here from, I have a new CD coming out. The first one was Slideshow with a lot of different guest artists. And this is my second one, a long time span in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like just 15 to years. Find, yeah, 15 years. Just finding time to do it. And there's different guest artists, so it's up to there. It's kind of like you and I trying to get together, trying yeah. to get well, you're so busy. together. <laughs> I was going to ask you, and now I don't really need to. I figured it out on my own. I was going to ask you why it has been 15 years between albums, but you're so busy playing with other people. When do you have time to make albums? I, I figured you'd have 10 albums by now, but you're so busy you working can. with other people. And you know, 
some people do it. I just work at a different pace. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, sometimes it's just so busy that I would get off the road and just be just really tired and not want to have to do anything. <laughs> but uh, finally, uh, in the past three, four years, there's been time in between. And uh, I've got different guest artists on there going on their schedule. So um, I love so many different styles of music and so many different players. And, and that's what this new CD is. Again, it's, it's the, called Waltz for Abilene. It's called Waltz for Abilene. Great title. Uh, I wrote a song uh, by the same title. Larry Campbell's playing with me on, on that track. Love Larry Campbell. Along with Abby Newton, who's a fabulous cello player that lives in the area. No Teresa Williams. No, no. Um, no, because it was an instrumental. She's an amazing vocalist. Yes, she is. So uh, the new CD will be out in uh, January. I will have it in a few weeks at live shows I'm doing for sale, but it will officially be out to the public in January. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I am so glad to have been able to put the whole thing together and have it out now. So, uh, so yeah, we can take a listen to the title cut, Waltz for Abilene, Larry Campbell. Thank you. 
thank you, Cindy, for sharing that. I mean, I I feel honored that it's. I don't know if it's debuting on this show or or if it's appeared other places, Actually, but. Actually, that track is, yes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm honored to have it on the show, and good luck with the CD when it comes out. I know I'm going to buy my Thank copy. You. Well, I think I, I think I can, I think we'll be able to give you one, Rick. <laughs> oh, that's very nice of you, but I want to support uh, all musicians. I think you do. With, with, with this podcast, you most certainly do. You know, Cindy, you've played with so many people. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. I can't even list them all here because there's too many from... Rory Block to Sonny Landreth to uh, Rod Stewart and Van Morrison and there's just so many Willie Dolly Merle my gosh uh, I mean how do you reconcile all these different people with with your instrument do do you try to play for their per- particular style or are they just wanting Cindy Cash dollar and you just do your thing I think I think it's both I think certainly if people call you they they want your sound but then I always try and play to the artist, be it their tone of their voice or their style of music or the lyrics. You know, people always say, well, "What do you do when you go into a recording session?" Or I always listen to the lyrics first and foremost because somebody wrote a song, it's telling a story. You cannot override the story you have to be part of the words you know you have to be you have to support what they're doing not only with their voice but what the story that they're You're telling the story song. and so i'm always want a copy of the lyrics in front of me to play to that to play to the mood of the song to play with the other musicians that are playing be it live or in the studio if there's a fiddle playing in a high register where you don't want to get in their way you know you just it's just like catching a wave. <laughs> I wish all musicians were like that. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, it's a great approach to playing somebody's material. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about Woodstock and growing up, and, and I felt very fortunate that, you know, I always wanted to go to music school, like the Berkeley School of Music. Never made it. But the best thing in the world was growing up in Woodstock and getting to see so much great live music. And then being in such a wonderful environment and getting to play with wonderful people one of whom was rick danko and rick said to me less is more and i think that's a really good thing less is more you don't need to play a bunch of notes you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's certainly you can certainly do that in many situations it works but his thing was keep it simple It'll still be okay. Sage advice. It really was at the time for me. It really was. You know, Cindy, there's so many people I mentioned. uh, I did write down a few that I thought were pertinent that I wanted to ask you about. And one of them, his name has come up already. Always been fascinated with this guy, the late, great Leon Redbone, which you've worked extensively with him. Mm -hmm. Done a lot of work with him. He sadly passed uh, this year in May. It seems like he was around forever, too. I've just always had him around, especially in this area, playing. And he was only 74. I I was amazed to hear that because it seems like the guy's been alive forever. It does seem that way. And and I think he, he kind of made it that way. He liked that timeless kind of music. He almost lived in another era of philosophy and music and art yeah he he was um, a very interesting person to work with it was a very interesting five years of touring and recording and doing so many live shows and going overseas and he was a very quirky person but he was a very brilliant person i think he 
taught me a lot, not only musically, but just how to kind of roll with the punches, no matter who you work with, because, you know, there was a lot of cruelty regulations and quirky stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but he was a very brilliant man, like not only a great musician, but he was a fine artist. You know, like he could draw beautifully. He was an incredible cook. His father was a chef. And so I still have a little recipe of, of his, but uh, you know, he built a, a brick oven in his backyard so he could bake bread. He was a, a truly a, a Renaissance man. And a real enigmatic artist too. Yes. I mean, nobody sounds like that No, guy. nobody. You know, next on the list, uh, a guy you also worked with a lot is Ryan Adams. You were not only, you weren't a hired gun exactly, you were a member of the Cardinals, right? Yes, member well, of the Cardinals and, and recorded the um, double CD Cold Roses with Ryan. Cold Roses. Mm -hmm. right. What was that like being a member of the band? Is that different than just being a hired gun? I mean, do you get to make decisions? Do you, do you know, do you get paid more? I mean, how does it differ? Oh, Ryan Adams is a very generous artist who, you know, we all had a, a canon. I mean, he, he wrote the songs, but, you know, if one of us had an idea, it was, it was very much a democracy with Ryan. It wasn't Ryan, you know, it wasn't just him, I'm the band leader, and you guys are going to do this. He was a very generous person, I think, um, both musically and personally. I, I know he's he's had some hard times this year in the press, but, you know, he made some really bad decisions, obviously. But um, when I worked for him, he was it was a, a very broad-based experience in the studio and on the road. But, I mean, that's a rock yeah, band, essentially. Yeah, it was a total, it was a total rock band. Yeah, so you, you played with rock bands, you played mm -hmm. with country oh, yeah. people. I mean, you, so many different styles. How do you play dobro or any non-pedal steel guitar in that type of a setting? Is that an easy transition to make? Well, so, like the dobro actually was very difficult. There were some songs... Uh, with Ryan that required the dobro. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to, at that level of loudness, it was a very loud rock band, um, to amplify the dobro. But, uh, you know, you just have to kind of be on top of what equipment's going to work. And you have to uh, research that a lot and have good people in the business that have your back and say, I think this is going to work for you. You know, and, and uh, luckily at that point, um, I did have some great people that were very helpful with, nope, you need this kind of pickup to be heard. Fender amplifiers, you know, I got an endorsement with them, working with Ryan, loud band. I had two, you know, big Fender twin amps with 15-inch speakers in each. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the Doro, let's just say that was safe for just a few of the songs. Yeah. And the rest were on steel guitar and lap steel. There's another guy here uh, I've written down. He made a little bit of a splash back in the 60s. Some people may not remember his name, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, talk about enig enigmatic guy. Uh, I have telltale signs. I listen to it all the time, so I get to hear you on that. What was that experience like? I mean, that's a loaded question, I'm sure. But working with Bob Dylan is probably, uh, my guess is it's not like working with other people in many ways. I, I heard a rumor one time that musicians that worked with him sometimes had to sign these contracts that they wouldn't post photos or they wouldn't talk much about working with him. Have you experienced any of that? I think just, just out of respect, I, I don't recall signing anything. I mean, I've had to do that with other artists I've worked with. I don't recall it with Bob, and, and I know you're referring to his his 
CD, Time Out of Mind, which is the work I did with Bob. Oh, Telltale Signs, I said? Uh, time yeah, Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind. Ti- CD, oh, yeah. Well, well, Telltale Signs also has something, uh, you playing on it as well. Oh, that was it's a yeah, compilation. probably some of that tracks. Because I know yes. Time Out of Mind, there was a lot of different takes of one song. And so these various takes seem to have ended up on various <laughs> various projects, various CDs. The main, you know, the project I worked was was on that recording. I mean, it's yeah, it's a loaded question because I think with every person I work with, they're multifaceted, and he's certainly multifaceted. I found him to be a very lovely person, funny. Funny sense of humor. I've always heard that. Yeah. Very interesting to watch the whole process of Time Out of Mind. It was recorded, at least the, the portion that I did. It was recorded in a few different studios. I was at Criteria Studio in Miami, which was the famous studio for the Bee Gees. Yeah. And a bunch of people. So it's a big cavernous room. Uh, I think there was like 13 of us playing live. Daniel Lenoir was the producer. I thought that uh, Bob's intuitiveness on how to do a, a certain style of one song was really amazing to watch and be part of. Trying songs in different keys, different tempos. Jim Keltner was on drums, so he had a, a, a good hand in, in setting some of the feel for a, a lot of the um, different versions we were doing. Um, it, it really was an incredible experience. And the CD sounds exactly like what it was like in the studio. It's so live. So when I do listen, you know, the very few times I listen to the CD, it just brings me back to that room in that studio. Hmm. It sounds exactly like it, the room. That's good to hear. But I found Bob to be a, a just nice, you know, kind of funny you know, as soon as we would go back in the control room to listen to playback, he would go around to each one of us, what do you think of that take? You know, Wow. Was, yeah. R- wanted your opinions. Yeah. Of course, you didn't dare say, well, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you in the third verse and the eighth. <laughs> yeah. I don't like those lyrics, Bob. Uh, yeah, the music's okay. Are, you know, I think maybe you should add a sixth note. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that album won a Grammy. Uh, That's right. It was the album of the year. Album yeah. of the year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Jake Dylan won his Grammy that same year for Wallflowers album. Yeah, imagine that. Uh, that yeah. must have been fun. You ever get nervous working with some of these people because they're not just great musicians. Some of them are big stars. No, I don't get nervous. I might. I think my mind will go. Okay, what are the likes, dislikes, the quirks? Just like, no matter what job I think anybody would have. If you have a new boss periodically, you're going to be concerned about what are they going to like, what are they not going to like. And that's where my mind would go. Hmm, I wonder what, you know, you can and can't do. Before I went into the studio for the Time Out of Mind sessions, there was a few people that, you know, would say, you know, oh, we better not do this, better not do that. But my brain said to myself, you can't listen to other people. You have to form your own opinion with your own experience. And I'm very glad that I did that. Because if you listen to other people, no matter what job you have, you go to work, it's just like that's where your mind's going to be. Bad stuff. But I think you have to be open. And that's, I think, the approach I took. 
That's a great approach. I mean, th that's I was, what an yeah. artist does. You, know, you have to trust the, yourself. I was sitting in the studio uh, waiting for Bob. I was the only one there. Uh, I had come days after all the other musicians had been recording and set up. So I was the only person in this huge studio. And uh, his road manager came up to me and said, Bob's coming. Bob's coming. <sighs> And I thought, well, okay, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> Roll out the red carpet? Or? Yeah, it was, it was oh. interesting, you know. And and so um, he, was, he was lovely. You know, I was sitting at my steel guitar, and he just came up to me and said, oh, I, you know, hi, nice to meet you, and I have a steel guitar, you know. So, yeah, so my advice is to uh, anyone in this business who, who might have a bit of nerves about that, and, and rightly so with, with anybody, any new person you're working with for, just be open. You know, you're a different person that they're working with, too. So well, Bob they might Dylan, be nervous about working with you. You don't know. Exactly. You know? I was going to say, Dylan should be nervous working with you, no, not, not the other way around. just meeting a new person and just getting used to the, the lay of the land. I'm going to ask him if he was nervous working with you when he comes on the show. <laughs> I think next he's next week's guest. Paul, is he? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> All right. You know what? Before we have to go, I, I hate it when our time ebbs away. I'm having mm -hmm. such a good time, but alas, all good things come to an end. So could we play some something else off the new album? Sure. You were asking me before we started the podcast here, mm -hmm. You, we were talking about Texas blues. Yes. And it's interesting. It's like blues, there's so many facets of it, you know, and I think to really hear the difference, you would have to maybe live in different areas of the country to pick up on the different styles, just like any kind of, of music that is kind of steeped in one place or another. I did, after a while of, of living in Austin, Texas, and you know, I, I was with the Sleep at the Wheel for nine years. I left just because I wanted to start doing other music other than Western Swing. I wanted to get back to other stuff. So there was a lot of blues musicians in Austin, but after a while, I did get to understand what Texas blues was, and I, I, I can't explain it to you, <laughs> but, but there is a style, and, and it comes from a long line and many years of different players. So, so the track that, that we'll play, um, the vocalist is Omar Kent Dykes, who I love. He had a group for a long time. I'm sure a lot of listeners may have seen, heard Omar and the Howlers. And so Omar, uh, we, we did a song called How Many More Years. I'm playing lap steel and Omar singing and playing guitar. And also on this track is Derek O'Brien, one, one of the greats of Texas blues in Austin. Sarah Brown on bass, Corey Keller on drums, who is Marsha Ball's drummer. This was a lot, we didn't overdub, this was like a one take thing. And we had so much fun. If you if you listen when the song ends, just wait a couple of seconds, you'll hear Omar let out this cackle. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Let's listen.
That's just great. Thank you so much for sharing this music. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, so Cindy. Fun. This has been a blast. It's so sad that it's come to an end. This happens at any podcast that I love. It's just sad when it's over. I don't know what it is. I'm See, a- and I want to ask you about your time in Nashville. We'll do it after the podcast. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'd love yeah. to talk about that. Cindy, thank you again for making the time out of your very busy schedule to come here and talk about your career and your music and just hang out. Uh, Thank you. Really and great. I just hope who, whoever hears this, if you see me playing live, I'll be touring with Sonny Landreth. This year, I, I tour with Rory Block, who's amazing. Uh, she's just an incredible vocalist. She is incredible. Country blues artist. We have a duo called Sisters of Slide. Whoever's coming out to the shows, I play once a month at the Falcon. I have a group called Cindy Cashall and the Syncopators. My brother, Russ Cashall, is on drums. Jeremy Baum, Andy Stack, Adrian Raju. Ryan Berg, we have a great swing band. Great. I can't wait to come out and see you myself. Always come up to me and say hi. I enjoy meeting people. Uh, I hope you come back sometime and and join us. You're welcome to visit anytime you want. Thank you. Always nice to be at home. Thank you, Cindy. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Every week, produced and engineered by Rusty Johnson. And hey, thanks to Paul Antonell and the Clubhouse Studios for housing us here tonight and hosting tonight's podcast. Click subscribe. Here's an idea. Come back next week, and I promise I'll interview another talented and interesting Hudson Valley musician, and we'll see you then. (music) 